good morning Chapel Street. It's wonderful that we can meet together for Good Friday using technology. It's an incredible thing that we can be in our different places and that we can come together and worship God together. Good Friday is a very important day. It's the day we remember the cross of Christ. I remember a few years ago walking with Briny and we went around and saw people around the place we were living and asked them what's so good about Good Friday? Because when you think about Good Friday, it's actually the day Jesus died. And so we asked lots of people that question. And at first, they sort of scrunched their faces and were trying to think, what could be good if Jesus died? And so I ask you that question this morning. If you think about Good Friday, do you really know why Good Friday is so good? Because as we look at our passage this morning from Matthew chapter 27, I want us to consider Good Friday in the light of the prophecies that we have recorded for us there. And so I encourage you to have a Bible, to have it open, because we'll be working our way through that chapter. Because when we look at this part of the Bible, we see that Jesus' death was not just another death by crucifixion. Rather, it was the fulfillment of prophecy. As you read through Matthew chapter 27, we repeatedly reminded of other Old Testament passages, allusions, references that point to the coming of the anointed one. The word for anointed one in Messiah in Hebrew is Messiah and in Greek it's Christ. And so the Messiah or the Christ is God's chosen king. He's the one who is going to come and establish God's eternal kingdom. But also he's the one who is going to come and bring eternal judgment against those who rebel against God. And so eternal judgment and eternal salvation will come through the judgment seat of Christ. And those he saves, those who are with him forever, have that glorious hope of being in the kingdom of heaven. And the message about the Messiah is what we refer to as the gospel. The Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah make two things clear. He's the one who will reign forever, but he's also the one who will suffer and die. That's why Jesus is called often the servant king, because he's going to actually give his life to save his people. And so thinking about prophecies, sometimes you hear people as they talk about religions and how old they are, they say Christianity is only about 2000 years old. But that's not right. That's wrong. What happened 2000 years ago was not the beginning of the Christ or the Messiah, but the fulfillment of the prophecies that God had given. Prophecies that went go back all the way to the Garden of Eden. In the very beginning, Adam and Eve, the first human beings, had put their hope in the Messiah. They had rebelled against God. They needed to be saved. In Genesis 3.15, it says the one who would come to save God's people would deliver them from their great enemy, the devil. And the one who would come would be the seed of the woman. We read in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, the devil, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, that's pointing to Jesus, will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. The seed of the woman is the Christ, is Jesus. That verse is sometimes referred to as the proto-euangelion, proto meaning first, and euangelion meaning good news or gospel. And the word Christian simply means Christ follower. 
God's people have always been followers of the Christ, the ones who put their hope in the Messiah. And from the very beginning right through to the end, there is one gospel and it spans the entire Bible from the very beginning to the very end. God only has one plan of salvation. To be a Christian is to hold to the one true religion. It did not come to be at some point in human history. No, the Christian message, the gospel has been proclaimed by God himself since the beginning. And so the gospel message from God spans from the creation of the world to the very end. Those before Jesus look forward to the coming of Jesus and his death on the cross. We who live after that look back to the work that he did when he died on the cross. Yet together in the end, we are all followers of the Christ. And we look forward to him coming again because when Jesus comes again, he will take those who are his to be with him forever in the kingdom of heaven. And it's the prophetic word that sets Jesus' death apart from every other death. No other death in all history has been foretold with such detail and was fulfilled so perfectly as the death of Jesus the Christ. That is why we know Jesus is the Messiah, because he's the only one who has lived and died and lived again in fulfillment of the things God had proclaimed in the Bible. And so God gave his people the Bible so we could recognize who the Christ is. Prophecy is the very word of God. Men spoke, we are told, as they were carried along by the Spirit of God. To hear or to read the words of the prophets in the Bible is to hear from God himself. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired faithfully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Sadly, in churches and in academia today, prophecy is diminished. They lessen the work of God and try and make the prophets understanding more. But don't be fooled. Prophecy is the very voice of God. That's what the Bible says. The prophets, those men who spoke his words, were the mouthpieces of God. Prophecy is supernatural because it is God at work. Those who diminish prophecy struggle to embrace the supernatural aspects of the Bible. And so every time we see Jesus fulfill a prophecy, it's as if God himself is in the witness box. God is there bearing testimony saying, Jesus is the one. He is the Christ. He is my chosen king. He is the one whom I have sent to save his people from their sins. And so if you have your Bible... I encourage you now to be looking in Matthew chapter 27 because I would like us now to consider some of the prophecies that we have. So we're going to look at 12 and we'll move fairly quickly, but I encourage you to have your Bible in front of you. The first prophecy we see that Jesus was to be handed over by the Jewish leaders in Matthew chapter 27 verses 1 and 2. When morning came, 
All the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Jesus himself prophesied and said that would happen. Back in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 to 19, Jesus said before they even got to Jerusalem, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked to be flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. Another prophecy in Matthew chapter 27, verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Judas betrayed Jesus. He was one of his close friends. He was one of the close disciples. And back in Psalm 41, verse 9, we're told, it says of the Messiah, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. On Good Friday, we see the devil bruise Jesus' heel. But on Easter Sunday, we'll see Jesus bruise the devil's head. On Sunday, Jesus gives the devil a crushing blow that will leave him defeated forever. A blow that guarantees our salvation. Another prophecy. Matthew 27, verse 6. <clears throat> but the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. It's an interesting event, but it's an event that God said would happen. Matthew writes in verse 9, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed. This is an interesting fulfillment. If you've got a footnote, you'll see that the actual quote that is written there actually comes from Zechariah. So... Matthew is saying what happened was a fulfillment of what Jeremiah said, but then he's quoted Zechariah. What's interesting is this is not unique. If you have your Bible, just turn forward to the start of Mark's Gospel. The opening verse says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written, Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That's actually from Malachi. So Mark refers to something said by Isaiah, then quotes Malachi. Matthew refers to something prophesied by Jeremiah, then quotes Zechariah. So it's not unique what's happening here. Here's an explanation. Mark's gospel begins with Mark referring to Isaiah, yes. But then he quotes Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And so the Holy Spirit guided Mark to see that Isaiah's prophecy and Malachi's prophecy are not distinct. Both passages concern the coming of a messenger from God. What Malachi prophesied later is to be understood as a continuation of what Isaiah had prophesied. The Holy Spirit wants us to see that Malachi's words is further to what Isaiah had to say. And it's as we bring Malachi's words into Isaiah's words 
that we gain a fuller understanding of Isaiah's original prophecy. It seems the same thing's happening here in Matthew 27. Matthew refers to Jeremiah. Then he quotes Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 to 13. The Holy Spirit's guided Matthew to see that Jeremiah's prophecy and Zechariah's prophecy are not distinct. Both passages concern potters and clay and people in rebellion against God. What Zechariah prophesied later should be understood as some more detail about what Jeremiah originally prophesied. And so we see Zechariah's words as a fulfilling out of Jeremiah's words. And it's as we bring Zechariah's words to Jeremiah's words that we gain a fuller understanding. And so as Isaiah's prophecy goes forth, with Malachi adding or speaking into it, so we have Jeremiah's prophecy goes forth with Zechariah speaking into it. But the original prophecies are attributed to Isaiah and to Jeremiah. Another prophecy that we see fulfilled is in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But then they start to interrogate him. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer. Not even to a single charge, so that the governor was amazed. And what are we told in Isaiah 53 verse 7 about Jesus? It said that he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The prophecy said that he would be silent and when Jesus came, he was silent. We see in Matthew 27 verses 22 to 23 about him being rejected. This is what happened in history. Pilate said to them, do you want Barabbas? They said, no, no. In verse 22, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And that's exactly what Isaiah 53 said would happen. He was despised and rejected by men. This is the coming of the king, God's anointed one. God actually said he would be rejected. The Jews probably thought he would never be rejected, but God said that's exactly what would happen. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But they didn't just reject him, they mocked him. We read on in verses 28, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the road and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Verse 39, we see, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Psalm 22 says, in verses 6 to 7, Of the Christ, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. God prophesied that through King David. 
What was prophesied happened in history again and again and again at the cross. Even his crucifixion, we're told they led him away to be crucified. That comes up repeatedly in Matthew 27 and in Psalm 22, verse 16, a thousand years before. It says of the Christ, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Even what he was offered to drink in verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. In Mark 15:36, it's called sour wine. And the very prophecy from Psalm 69 verse 21 says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Even what happened around the cross in verse 35, we are told, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them, casting lots. That's what David prophesied back in Psalm 22 verse 18. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Even what people were saying. We read in Matthew 27, verse 33, He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The people were mocking the message. The people were mocking Jesus. And what were we told when the Messiah comes? Psalm 22, verse 8. This is what the people would say. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. And then we have this extraordinary cry of Jesus in verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the opening line to Psalm 22 that we've already been taken to. Verse 1 of Psalm 22, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Jesus cries these words not for his sake. It's for our sake. He knows exactly what God is doing. But we don't. The words he cries take us to that psalm. They're the opening lines of the psalm. Not just so we focus on the opening lines, so that we consider the whole psalm. And we see how Jesus is fulfilling all the things of that psalm. Jesus wants us to go to Psalm 22 and meditate on the things we are told there to see how he is the fulfillment. Even what happens after he dies, we're told in verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Even that had been prophesied. Isaiah 53 verse 9, we're told, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. That was Isaiah. That was hundreds of years before. And Joseph of Arimathea was that rich man. The more you meditate on Matthew 27, the more things you will see fulfilled. But what happened that first Good Friday 2,000 years ago was the fulfillment of prophecies given. It wasn't the beginning. 
It was the fulfillment of things that take us back to the creation of the world. And the Bible even says it's the fulfillment of God's plan that was in place before the creation of the world. God had planned to save his people through Jesus Christ even before day one of creation. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. The NIV renders verse 20 this way, He was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Prophecy after prophecy, the plan of God from before the creation of the world, Christianity spans all time and goes into eternity past. And God has given us these prophecies that we would look at the day Christ was crucified, that we would consider Good Friday and be silent. And to weigh up, who is this man? Because God is doing everything that we would focus on him and come to him and look to him and listen to him. If you were asked about Easter, the who, when, where, how sort of questions, they're probably fairly simple for many of us to answer. Who died? Jesus, the Son of God, who came into the world as a man. When did he die? Around AD 33, on the day of preparation for the Passover. Where did he die? In a place outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha. How did he die? On a cross. It was there that he gave up his spirit. Who, when, where and how are questions that we're probably ready to answer. But sadly in Australia at this time, more and more people don't know how or what the answer to those questions are. And it's important that we don't go silent on the message of Easter. But for us who can probably answer those questions, can you answer the next one, why? Because God is getting us to focus on Jesus, but why? Christ's death on the cross is not just very important. It has to be the most important death of all. But why? Given that God has been pointing to this death on the cross, one prophecy after another through the ages since the beginning of time, and that that death was planned before the creation of the world, why? And given at this side of the cross, we continue to keep being taken back to that day, Good Friday, and that the Bible has been given by God to keep shining the light on what God has done. God consistently through all history keeps putting the spotlight on the death of the Christ. Do you know why? Why? Matthew starts his gospel in chapter 1, verse 21. The angel says this, she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Later, Jesus himself says for even in Matthew 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a payment. Jesus came to save his people. His people needed to be saved from their sins. And Jesus would save his people from their sins by giving his life as a ransom, as a payment for their sins. But who's the payment to? 
It's not to the devil. It's not to the world. The payment is to God. God is the righteous judge. God is the one who has been offended. God is the one who must uphold the law. God is the one who must make the law satisfied. And God has said the wages of sin is death. But what does death ultimately entail? John the Baptist in Matthew 3 verse 12 tells us God has set a day when Jesus will come with his winnowing fork. He'll have that in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat, that's his people, into the barn, that's the kingdom of heaven. But the chaff, those who persist in their sins and keep living in rebellion against God, he, Jesus, will burn them with unquenchable fire and hell. So God's punishment, God's righteous punishment towards sinners is death and being punished eternally in hell. Now we mustn't diminish that payment, that punishment. If we diminish the punishment, we get it all messed up. If we think the punishment is too great and there are people today that think that, then you don't recognize how sinful sin is and you end up doing two things. God himself says sin against him is worthy of an eternity in hell. If you say no, that's too much. You not only declare God as being unjust, but you're also saying, God, you're not as worthy as you think you are. To argue the penalty, your sinful heart is actually at work lessening and diminishing God's glory and his worth. But if you argue the payment for sin should not be that much, you also lessen the worth of Jesus. The payment, the ransom for sin that God provides is his precious son, the lamb without blemish. God says he alone can make sufficient payment. To argue the penalty is too much, your sinful heart is diminishing the payment. You're saying the sacrifice of the cross doesn't have to be that much. And you end up diminishing the worth of Jesus. You must acknowledge your sin you must acknowledge what God said is the righteous judgment and eternity in hell. Only as you do that will you begin to give God the Father and His Son the glory due to the name that they have. So why the cross? That is the place the payment was made. To answer that question a bit more fully, I'd like us to look at one more prophecy from Matthew 27. And this time to see how the sacrificial system was pointing forward to the Christ and how Jesus came to fulfill the sacrificial system that God himself put in place. We read in Matthew 27 verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Mark 15, verse 25 tells, it was, tells us it was the third hour. That's, excuse me, that's 9 a.m. when they crucified him. So Jesus was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. and he died on the cross at 3 p.m. Those times are very significant. It means Jesus was lifted up onto the cross at the time of the morning sacrifice that took place in the temple and that he was offered up on the cross for the duration of the sacrificial day and that Jesus breathed his last and gave up his spirit at the time of the evening sacrifice at the end of the day, at the end of the sacrificial day. 
Jesus' time on the cross spanned the time of the daily sacrifice. Those daily sacrifices began and ended with the sacrifice of a lamb as a burnt offering. Burnt offerings were placed on the altar. They were completely burned up. As a sacrifice, they were a sacrifice of atonement or propitiation. To propitiate means to appease the righteous anger of God. The anger that God has placed upon sinners. And so they would start their day with the lamb being sacrificed, that the lamb might be a substitute to take the wrath of God against sin. And then they'd finish their day with another lamb that would be sacrificed as a burnt offering, completely consumed, to be a substitute to take the righteous anger of God as a substitute. That sacrifice was the place God's wrath was poured out. That sacrifice was done continually. They had to do it every day, start and finish, offer this sacrificial lamb as a sacrifice of atonement, morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening. But Jesus came. Jesus came as the fulfillment of those sacrifices. Jesus came to be the lamb that could be sacrificed. And on that cross, Jesus made payment sufficient for the penalty for all the sins of his people. Again and again, those priests had gone to the temple. Every day it had ended in exactly the same way. They would do their evening sacrifice and nothing really had changed. They couldn't stop the sacrifices. They had to get up the next morning and offer the morning sacrifice. The next evening, offer the evening sacrifice. But something extraordinary happened on the day that Christ was offered up as the sacrifice. When that morning sacrifice was given, Christ was nailed to the cross and he was hoisted up on the altar that God had prepared for him to be the lamb, the place that God would pour out his wrath to be a propitiation for the sins of his people. And then at the end of the day at 3 p.m., at the ninth hour, when Christ gave up his spirit, we read something remarkable, something wonderful happened in the temple. Verse 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, not from the bottom, but from the top. And the earth shook and the rocks split. That curtain was thick and very high. It was a supernatural tearing. That curtain separated the Holy of Holies, kept men out. No one could come before God. Only the high priest once a year. But Jesus comes as our high priest. Jesus was nailed on the cross. God's wrath was being poured out of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he breathed his last, the sacrifice had died. He had been consumed by the wrath of God. And the temple, the temple curtain tore, showing that the payment that Jesus made, his sacrifice was sufficient to bring sinful men before God. It meant those sacrifices in the temple could stop what they could, had failed to do day in and day out, year after year. They could never tear that curtain. But Jesus came and he tore the curtain. His body is the way by which we can come before God. His body is the way we can have peace with God and have the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came to pay the price due to God for the sins of his people so that we could become the children of God. 
That's why Jesus died on the cross. Knowing the who, what, where and when of Easter is not enough. But I want to say this to us as well this morning. Knowing the why of Easter is not enough either. Even the devil knows why. The earnest question for all of us today is, does Jesus' death on the cross count as payment for your sin? The famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Knowing why Jesus died on the cross won't save you, but believing in him, putting your trust in him, that brings salvation. Coming before Jesus and recognizing what he's done on the cross and falling on our knees and crying out to God for his mercy, repenting of our sins, saying, I want to leave a life of sin behind, acknowledging how sinful I am, acknowledging the penalty is right for my sin and saying to God, I know Jesus is the only payment. I want to trust in him alone. And you cry out to God for mercy. God, may Jesus' death count as payment for my sin, for I know he alone makes payment. And the wonderful promise of God, he is faithful and just to keep, is if you do that, God's wrath will be removed from you forever. And so I encourage us this Good Friday to remember that Christ's death is unique. All the prophecies declare it's unique. We'll see on Easter Sunday the resurrection, which shows us again it's unique. And the prophecies and the way Matthew puts it together, the Holy Spirit shows us that Jesus came to be the sacrifice for the sins of his people. The king gave his life that we might be saved. And so I encourage us in our homes as we gather this morning after this, I encourage us to have a time of quiet confession. As Christians, we can become complacent. We can start taking the cross for granted and just assume on things day by day. But I encourage us to stop and remember the penalty of sin and God's wrath against sin and what Christ paid for and what that meant when he paid for our sin on the cross. I encourage us to have a time of giving thanks to God for forgiving us for our sins. And especially too, if you have not repented of your sin, I encourage you now to come before him that you might be saved, to cry out to him for mercy. As we considered those prophecies, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53 were very prominent. And so I encourage you on this Good Friday to take time to prayerfully meditate on what God tells us in those Psalms. And in Isaiah, maybe we just pick at least one, Psalm 22 or Psalm 69 or Isaiah 53. Good Friday is very good. Even though we look at the cross and we think, what can be good about that? When we see what God teaches us in the Bible, where we see what God has prophesied since the creation of the world, we see that Good Friday is so good because it's the day the King, Jesus, gave his life, laid down his life to make payment for the sins of his people so that we can have the gift of eternal life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your amazing grace. I thank you for the glorious gospel that's begin, that began before the creation of the world. I thank you for your kindness in showing us who Jesus is. And I pray, Lord, this morning that each one of us, wherever we gathered, will have made our peace with you.
know the joy of the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.